beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ. We know that Canada's heritage is based on a Judeo-Christian perspective on life. At Confederation, most Canadian citizens would have identified themselves as Christians, either Catholic or Protestant. The number of Christian churches scattered around the countryside is amazing. Christians have been involved in setting up many of our schools, colleges and universities, and hospitals. At least until World War II, the Christian faith had a positive influence on community life. Yet things have changed. The Western world is becoming increasingly hostile to Christians who hold fast the Bible's teachings. While we as Christians are allowed to hold our own private beliefs, increasingly we are being muzzled publicly. It's especially the case when we speak out against ungodly practices like abortion, same-sex relationships, or transgender rights. If you do those things online, you may be censored or lose your ability to participate on certain social media platforms. Increasingly, we see the LGBTQ community or advocates for transgender rights will target individuals or corporations that do not support their agendas. The opposition against Christians and others who hold biblical views on sexual orientation or gender identity is growing fierce. If you dare to speak about such issues, people will roast you and slam you and hate you. And beloved, that should not surprise us. Jesus warned us about that in John 15, verses 18 and 19. He said, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. The world hates Christians because it hates Jesus. Already in paradise, the Lord made clear the antithesis between the offspring of the woman and the offspring of Satan. He said that he was the one who put enmity between the world and his people. Our text describes how Jesus was confronted by hatred in his day. More and more, his followers are being confronted by the same. It's now popular to hate Christians and be open about it. It's a new reality that we have to learn to deal with. Our text gives us encouragement to face up to the opposition of the world against us. Our text shows how the Jewish leaders were plotting against Jesus. As prophesied in Psalm 2, the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Yet he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. As it says in Proverbs 19, verse 21, Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. Our text shows how the Lord uses the plans of the Jewish leaders to accomplish his purpose. I preach to you God's word under the following theme. Caiaphas prophesied it's better for one man to die for the people than for the whole people to perish. We'll consider how Caiaphas' words were motivated by hatred and fear and how Caiaphas' words were ordained by God. 
John 11 records one of the most amazing miracles Jesus performed during his earthly ministry. It tells us of how Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. It caused a division in the crowd that had come with Mary and Martha to Lazarus' tomb. Many of the Jews believed in Jesus. But some went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Our text tells us that the chief priests and Pharisees gathered together the council. It was made up of members of the priestly family, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. We know that the Romans were in ultimate control of all that happened in Judea. And they gave the Jewish council much leeway in governing their own affairs, especially in religious matters. So this council came, to, came together to discuss how they might deal with Jesus. This was not the Jewish leader's first run-in with Jesus. In John 10, we see the Jews utilizing mob violence to try to get rid of their nemesis, Jesus. But in our text, the Jewish council meets. This is a high-level consultation. The rulers over the Jews consult and plot and plan. They face a grave problem with Jesus. They asked, what are we to do? They state the problem as follows. For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. The Jewish council saw Jesus' many miracles as a great problem. Earlier, they may have doubted the genuineness of Jesus' miracles. But they could not dispute the facts that Jesus had opened the eyes of a 40-year-old man who was born blind. Neither could they deny that Jesus had truly raised Lazarus from the dead. These miracles were real. Some of them had even witnessed them. They were concerned that if they allowed Jesus to go on performing such miracles, everyone would believe in him. Please note, beloved, that the Jewish leaders do not stop to actually examine Jesus' works or the claims that he made. When God, through Moses, performed signs before Pharaoh, his magicians had to conclude, this is the finger of God. The Jewish leaders only had to look back at their own history to see the miracles God performed for his people through Moses and later through Elijah and Elisha. When someone came doing such powerful signs, it was clear evidence God was with him. You'd expect the Jewish council would examine Jesus' claim to be the long-awaited Messiah. But the Jewish leaders were not interested in examining the truth. Their eyes are blinded by unbelief. Do you know why that was? Well, they saw Jesus as a threat. If they let Jesus continue, they were afraid everyone would believe in him. Why was that a problem? Because the more people that turn to Jesus for leadership, the less their influence among the people would be. But they were not willing to admit that. So instead, they spoke about how Jesus was a threat to the nation. They were afraid that if all the people followed Jesus as a Messiah, 
There might be an uprising among the Jewish people. That would result in political and social unrest. If that happened, the Romans might come in with all their military might to squash the uprising. The Jewish leaders expressed fear about having their place and nation taken away. They were afraid the Romans might destroy the temple and might kill and deport many people. How are we to evaluate the conclusions of this Jewish council? Well, we could say that they'd come to depend more on worldly powers than on the power of God. These leaders were entrusted with the ancient Jewish faith. They fondly remembered God's redeeming work of bringing them out of Egypt and of drowning Pharaoh and his host in the Red Sea. They taught the people about how David killed Goliath and of how Elijah was victorious over the Baal prophets by relying on God's power. Yet when Jesus came displaying the power of God, they opposed him for fear of Roman swords. They didn't practice what they preached. See, beloved, the Jewish leaders were not all well-meaning men filled with love for their fellow citizens. They were proud, powerful men who enjoyed their prominent positions in society. John 12, 43 tells us that they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. They paraded their righteousness before the people by giving publicly to the needy or by praying long prayers in the synagogues and on the street corners. They did all their deeds to be seen by others. The reason they were opposed to Jesus was because they were afraid of him. The Jewish council, the Jewish council's opposition to Jesus is not really all that hard to understand. It was motivated by self-interest. It becomes clear in the words that the high priest Caiaphas spoke. He was tired of the hesitation of the council. Our text says he was high priest that year. He said, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He rebukes the council for its indecisiveness, and he proposes a solution. His proposal is to kill Jesus. Caiaphas was a pragmatist. He felt that sometimes one has to put up with a lesser evil to prevent a greater evil. Yet what he proposed was murder, a direct violation of one of God's commandments. His calling was to fear God rather than the Romans. His duty was to uphold justice and not to sacrifice it on the altar of politics. It's ironic to note that putting Jesus to death did not secure the safety of Jerusalem. Having rejected the true Messiah, the Jews went on to follow false messiahs who led them in revolt against Rome. The people's rejection of Jesus ultimately led to the sacking of Jerusalem in 70 AD. The Romans killed many of the Jews and 
they destroyed the temple. It was God's judgment on the Jews for their rejection of Jesus as the Messiah. So believing in Jesus didn't lead to punishment at the hands of the Romans, but rejection and hatred of Jesus did. The Jewish leaders hated Jesus. You know why? It's because they saw him as a threat to their own standing among the people. He was the threat to to the positions that they held, to the power that they wielded, to the prestige they received. And beloved, the exact same thing applies to us today. The reason why people hate Christians is because they see the Christian faith as attacking all they hold dear. People in society may not hate you specifically, but they hate what you believe. They hate what you stand for. Often the people of the world divide society into two groups, into those who are religious and those who are not. They think that most people in Western society are not religious. But that's a lie. All people are religious. We were created to worship. Ultimately, everyone has something or someone that they are committed to. Whatever you are ultimately committed to is your God. One of the most dominant gods of our age is the God of self. People believe that each individual has the right to determine what is right and what is wrong. And that no one else is allowed to question them. Christians are vilified for their perspectives on abortion. Many of our provinces have passed legislation creating what, is, what are called bubble zones around abortion clinics. You're not allowed to hold a pro-life sign within these zones. If you dare to show your opposition to abortion in public, You'll often experience the hatred of those who deem it's a woman's right to do whatever she wants with her own body. On June 4th, 2019, Pastor David Lynn was arrested in Toronto for creating a disturbance. He was preaching the gospel that God loves you in the gay district of Toronto. His speech was considered Provocative because it offended listeners by suggesting that all have sinned and all are in need of spiritual redemption. This pastor was not guilty of hate speech. The Crown ended up dropping the charges against him because they knew they did not have a case. Yet it was an attempt at intimidation to shut him up to appease the rights of the LGBTQ community. Just a few weeks ago, a father in BC was jailed for speaking openly about his opposition to attempts by his underage, gender-confused daughter to change her sex. He objected to a court order allowing her to undergo hormone therapy. He refused to call her by her new boy's name. He continued using the pronouns she and her. When referring to her, this father refused to be silenced by provincial authorities who banned him from speaking publicly about the situation. Media reports about this man portray him in a a negative light 
for not embracing the transgender ideology. This man is up for trial later this month for holding fast the truth. His daughter is a girl. Beloved, we need to wake up to the fact that God has put enmity between Christ and his people and the people of this world. While for many years Christians have been treated well in our society, we should not expect that to continue. And the reason is very simple. The gospel is offensive to many. They don't want to hear about right and wrong, about sin and judgment on sin, or about the way of salvation in Jesus Christ. Many around us are deluded by the lies of the evil one, and they're happy to live as they do. So they're easily offended by the truth. They show anger and hatred toward those who speak it. In our first point, we've seen how Caiaphas' words were motivated by hatred and fear. In our second point, we'll see how Caiaphas' words were ordained by God. Striking to see how our text speaks about the inner workings of the Jewish ruling council. We know that certain members of that council came to believe in Jesus. And that's likely where John got his information from. Yet what's remarkable about our text is that by the working of the Holy Spirit, John offers an editorial comment about the words Caiaphas spoke. John writes that Caiaphas did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Caiaphas had his own sinful reasons for saying it was better for one man to die for the people than for the whole nation to perish. But they were not just his words. He was an instrument of God's revelation. Unintentionally, Caiaphas was acting like a prophet here. He did so without realizing what he was really saying. In the Bible, a prophet is someone who speaks God's words to his people. Moses was a prophet, for he conveyed God's revelation to the people of Israel. Prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah were appointed by God to call his people to repentance when they strayed from his ways. Very often in their prophecies, you hear them say, Thus says the Lord, followed by various words the Lord commanded them to speak. Some might want to dispute that Caiaphas could be a prophet of the Lord, being such a sinful man. Yet, beloved, the Lord more often spoke through unbelieving men. Think of the time when Balak, king of the Moabites, hired Balaam to bring curses on Israel. Balaam was a sorcerer. And yet the Bible tells us that the Lord put a word in Balaam's mouth, and he blessed Israel. Later it says that the Spirit of God came upon him, something that often happened to the prophets. And again, he blessed Israel. Caiaphas was the God-ordained high priest of Israel. Priests were used more often to act, of, to act as agents of God's revelation. And so God used him to speak 
his words about what would happen to his son, Jesus Christ. Striking that Caiaphas doesn't just propose to murder Jesus. In trying to justify this, he speaks prophetically. When Caiaphas said, it's better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He used sacrificial language. He uses the language of substitution. It's better that one person should die so that the whole nation won't be destroyed. We'll kill him so the Romans won't kill us. Substitute Jesus for us. The Jews were very familiar with the idea of substitutionary atonement. It was the basis for their whole sacrificial system. In worship, they were called upon to sacrifice animals. For sin offerings and burnt offerings, they would lay their hand on the head of the animal and then cut its throat. The idea was that this animal would serve as a substitute for them. God would receive the animal's blood as a payment for sin. He would not bring his judgment on them. These Jewish leaders are planning to celebrate the Passover in just a few days. It's a feast in which they remembered how the angel of death had passed over the homes of those with blood on their doorposts while entering and killing the firstborn of the Egyptians. In the mind of Caiaphas, the substitution was this. We kill Jesus so the Romans don't kill us. But in the mind of God, the substitution was, I will kill my own son, so I don't have to kill you. God substitutes Jesus for his enemies. Sounds kind of harsh to speak about God killing his son. Killing usually involves cruelty and sin. And God is not cruel but merciful. He is not sinful. He's perfectly holy and righteous. And yet we can speak of God killing Jesus because the Bible speaks this way. Isaiah 53 uses that kind of language. Isaiah says that the coming Messiah would be smitten by God and afflicted. God smote him. Isaiah says the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all, that it was the will of the Lord to crush him. God laid our iniquities on Jesus. He had to bear the wrath of God against the sins of the whole world. This is the heart of the Christian faith, that God substituted Jesus for us. The good news of salvation is that God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Or as Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians 5, that in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. The reason why God doesn't hold our sins against us is because he gave his beloved son to die for us on a cross. That is the good news that we celebrate on this Good Friday. The fact that Caiaphas' words were ordained by God, 
that they were part of his plan of salvation is made clear in other parts of the Bible. Acts 2.23 tells us that Jesus was delivered up according to the definite foreknowledge and the plan of God. Acts 4 tells us about how the Jewish council tried to intimidate the apostles to prevent them from preaching in Jesus' name. The apostles prayed to the Lord for boldness, referencing Psalm 2, about how the kings of the earth and the rulers set themselves against the Lord and against his anointed. They said, For truly in the city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. God had a plan for the salvation of his people. It involved that one man should die for the sake of his people. John eleven fifty three 53 speaks about how Jesus knew of the plans of the Jewish council to put him to death. Jesus left Jerusalem for a time. He stayed at a town near the wilderness. He did not come back to Jerusalem until the time of the Passover feast so that he could fulfill God's plan to die as the Passover lamb for the sake of all God's chosen ones. So we see how God turned the plans of wicked men to the good of his people. Today, beloved, there continue to be wicked people who concoct evil schemes against the Lord and against his people. There are conspiracies against God's holy word to make people doubt what God says to us in the Bible. There is increasing opposition against the Christian church and those who profess the truths of the Bible. Just think about the new conversion therapy laws, which will make it a criminal offense to counsel children and young people against wanting to undergo a sex change. The United Nations and the World Health Organization, along with the world's elites, and with the support of the media and various tech companies, they're all doing their best to muzzle our witness to the world. Beloved, if we are faithful to Christ, it's almost certain that we will face hostility in this world. If we're unwilling to propagate the lies and are prepared to speak the truth, we will face hatred and opposition, perhaps even persecution. But if that happens, it too is part of God's plan. It's part of his plan for our lives to stop us from being complacent, to help us appreciate the riches we have in Jesus Christ. We need not fear. God is on our side. He's sovereign, king over all. God will use the hardships we experience to build us up in our faith that more and more we may entrust our lives to him. Beloved, there's also benefits to our society falling deeper into darkness. For two or three generations now, Canadians have been riding on the coattails of their grandparents' faith. The Bible teaches, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. For a few generations, our nation has experienced the residual effects of our Judeo-Christian heritage. 
But life across the nation is turning much darker. People are much less happy. Anxiety and depression are on the rise. Substance abuse and suicide rates continue to go up. Sin brings misery and death. Many in our country need to experience that. For it's only when you're truly in darkness that you will seek the light. We don't know what God's plan is for our lives or for our country. And yet we need not fear. God is with us as he has promised. He loved us so much he sent his son to die for us. Along with him, he will graciously give us all things. He will uphold and strengthen us. We pray that the Lord will use us to sound forth the good news of the gospel to those around us. That they too may know Jesus Christ and salvation in him. We pray for the conversion of many. That they too may share in the joy of faith, the peace of being made right with Christ, the comfort of belonging to Jesus Christ. The world may hate us, but the Lord loves his people with everlasting love. That's what we may celebrate on this day. Amen.